Live from the home office of Ag Solutions Network, it's the Ag Emerge Podcast. We're here to move the ag paradigm forward by helping you regenerate your soils using new ideas, research, and emerging technologies. Get ready to improve your soils, your crops, your livestock, and your family's livelihood. I'm Kim Sheese. And I'm Monty Bottoms. And we're your hosts. Thanks for joining us. Today on the Ag Emerge podcast, Matt Foes joins us as we discuss the exciting work he's doing on his own farm, what he's learned over the years, and designing systems approaches to growing corn and soybeans as efficiently as possible. Matt's from North Central Illinois, where he grew up on a corn and soybean farm. He's got a bachelor's in chemistry and a master's in weed science and has contributed significant research and agronomic support in the seed and chemical industry. What's exciting about the work Matt is doing is that he's taken what he's learned over the years and designed it in that systems approach. Matt is, however, quick to point out the importance of working with other people, learning alongside them, and then assembling that knowledge in a new and unique way. Our conversation looks at challenges facing farms today, everything from labor and working capital to rethinking passes across the field. Matt talks about applying the golden rule to growing crops. Oh, yes, and my favorite, uh, how 2019 messed up my spreadsheet. So, Matt, welcome to the Ag Emerge podcast. You know, we always like to start out our discussions with you telling us your story. Uh, Give us some key ideas and discoveries that you've had over the year that's led you to where you are today. Thank you very much. Uh, it's been a long road to get where I am today. Uh, I spent uh, about 20 years in, in the ag industry as an agronomist, as a researcher and such. Uh, meanwhile, uh, one of the best things about those positions was my opportunity to learn from other people. So I won't necessarily claim that any of my ideas are novel. I've, I've witnessed and, and learned from other people and, and tried to put them together and the combination may be novel, but the, the individual components probably aren't. So one of the things that we need to focus on in agriculture more is learning from one another. Um, so as time has gone on and I've, my role and responsibilities at the farm increased, I also saw the, the freight train coming that my, my father and the help that I usually have had over the years was no longer going to be an option at some point in time as, as people get older and, and, and their interests change, whatever it may be. So I had to figure out how to do things a little bit more efficiently rather than what we had traditionally done, which was the full width tillage and you know seven or eight or nine passes across the field to raise a crop. So I wanted to get to where every pass across the field was applying something whether it be seed, fertilizer, chemistry, whatever it may be, but there wasn't any of what I personally call dumb passes across the field where you're just basically weighing down a safety switch and pushing an auto steer button. So tillage in in general, to me, um, is very necessary in some systems, but in the system that I'm driving towards, I wanted it to be more than just the tillage. So... It's, it's taken a while to get where I'm at, uh, placing every, every, every nutrient is placed at the seed or near the seed mm-hmm. um, so that I can get the most bang out of my buck. 
Excellent. No, I think that's interesting what you're talking about there, Matt, as far as your your labor shortage, right? Uh, you yes. know, in the Midwest, we're largely owner operators. Uh, you know, in other areas where we have larger organizations, there's, you know, layers of management and, and people involved, but still there's labor shortages there too. So uh, the unique insight there of how you looked at everything you're doing and making sure how you're trying to combine operations or not operations, but I guess uh, what combine things that you're doing with every pass mm-hmm. across that field. So one of the things that I do, not only looking at labor, but also the capital involved in uh, those passes across the field, because the labor is one thing, but also if I'm making tillage passes, chances are I need a specialized tillage implement for that, as well as more hours on equipment, things like that. So what I want to do is combine operations as much as possible, uh, but not more than, than, than I need to, in order to uh, make the capital input uh, into the farm as low as possible, as well as the labor. So for the most part, other than you know, occasionally having someone haul fertilizer to me, I'm a, I'm a one-man wolf pack throughout the year until mm. I get to fall. And then, uh, that, yeah, that's fascinating. And, and a real similar path that, that I went down when I moved to California is I saw, you know, the intensity of the tillage, you know, the 8, 9, 11 passes between crops. And they got to do that twice a year because they do two crops. And it's like, wow, there's lots of things we combine, we can combine in there. And the initial conservation tillage movement in California was simply taking all of these, you know, a disc, a chisel, you know, mm-hmm. uh, another lighter duty disc and finisher and basically smashing it all together into one piece of equipment called a, a Wilcoxie eliminator. Well, eliminator okay. because it eliminated all these tools, right? And mm-hmm. another one came along called the optimizer. And they were still doing the same amount of work, you know, but you had one operator and one big 500 horsepower tractor pulling a 15 foot wide or 18 foot wide implement but doing all this work at once so the nice part about it was is you know typically for every one good guy you have on your team there's a couple others that probably could uh, help out another farm right and right right. the best part is they were able to keep their their good guy and become more productive over that and plus like you said there's also the working capital component and i know you took a hard look at that uh, you, you know, you don't have a tractor collection uh, like a lot no. of people do because <laughs> you can only drive one tractor at a time, right? You've, you've figured that out. So exactly, you don't need so, to have uh, six or eight of them around the farmstead. Right, right. And, and I've, I've chosen to go a, a slightly different path as far as uh, I know I've got mapped out on a spreadsheet. You know, I can, I can spreadsheet things like the best of them. Um, how many hours I expect to put on each tractor per year. And, and so I know even in 2020, if things go somewhere near plan, um, keeping 2019 in the back of our minds, that, okay, this is how many hours I need and, and I can do the, these operations in this sequence and, and get things done. Um, so I, I, I want to avoid uh, uh, just sitting in a seat weighing down a switch. I want a, a safety switch. I want to be actively doing things, be be actively making decisions on some sort of product being applied at all points in time. So, yeah, I, I agree. Combining the things that are happening in every pass is, is definitely uh, a, a cornerstone just to profitability. And like you said, it makes you leaner and meaner 
for tough times in the future because mm-hmm. uh, it's always a race to the bottom, right? And commodities, uh, who can do it the, <laughs> the fastest, the biggest, the, the cheapest. So Yep, who can make the most for the least amount of money. Correct. Um, so talk to us a little bit about what that actual transition is. And I want to go there, but I also want to talk about how 2019 messed up your spreadsheet. So you, you, you tell <laughs> me uh, which you'd like to talk about first if we need to if we need to sulk with 2019 first, we can. Or if you want to talk about what that actual transition looked like from full tillage to where you are today. Um, 2019 messed up a couple of different spreadsheets as I go through time. Yeah, but, let's uh, just, we'll let's just get 2019 we'll, out of the way, right? Yeah, the, I'm the just going to say, I feel like that's a new hashtag. 2019 messed up my yeah. <laughs> spreadsheet. Yeah. Yeah. Hashtag, I'll be happy to be done by Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> And, and, and I'll be honest with you, as the story plays out, it actually, not by design, but by good fortune, uh, worked out for the best that I do what I do going into 2019. Uh, so my, my plan as I go through time and, and how it all started was uh, several years ago, I, I used to put anhydrous ammonia on a head of corn. Uh, we had our own uh, anhydrous bar. Um, Quite honestly, I got tired of fixing the one from the co-op all the time, so I bought my own. <laughs> we did um, too, yes. <laughs> at least I was the only one that broke it um, as I looked at it. But uh, So I was going about uh, putting fall anhydrous on. The next spring, there was a field that the, uh, the gentleman that used to run my soil finisher um, forgot to do. And, of course, this was in the heat of battle, and um, he was 10, 12 miles away by the time I got to the field and said, oh, my gosh, you know, what are we going to do? So I had, uh, I had applied the anhydrous straight. So I was like, well, you know, other people strip till. This will be my, my try. You know, it, I'm not going to have him drive 20 miles each way. And uh, lo and behold, it planted beautifully. And, and so that coming fall, um, I said about, you know, doing it intentionally. Uh, he was he was getting into his middle 70s, and while he enjoyed running the tractor, he was his his days were were better spent uh, spending time with his wife and things like that. So, uh, ended up doing my first attempt at, at banding fertilizer and strip till by accident. Um, turns out uh, that was a good accident to have, and and went down that road until about uh, 2015 was my first year of dry fertilizer banding. So gave, a, gave up the anhydrous, not because it didn't work and not because it doesn't work in many systems, but because by the, I wanted to get the strips done with the, the phosphorus and potassium in a timely manner when soil conditions were good. Because if you have a better seed bed, you generally have a better crop. So if I got that done when October, uh, it tended to make a nice, nice seed bed for the next year. And uh, by doing it in October, I couldn't apply anhydrous because it was too warm yet. So I gave that up, decided to push it until in, in crop more so uh, as time went on. So um, in the fall, I only apply P and K and maybe some sulfur, uh, of which um, mostly are immobile. So what I'm applying in the soil is, is not subject to loss over the course of the winter, whereas the nitrogen would have been. So um, I started placing things where they needed to be for the ne- upcoming crop. Phosphorus, potassium aren't mobile, so I want to put them down deep in the root zone where they will be available 
in come July and August of the next year. Mm-hmm. And just for some to clarify a couple things for some of our Western listen, listeners, we're using muriate of potash here, uh, potassium chloride, which isn't very mobile compared to like potassium sulfate that would be used out West and would be mobile. Uh, and you're also using for your sulfur sulfur ammonium sulfate, which is very stable, very long lasting in the soil and, and doesn't, isn't subject to leaching or decompo- or denitrification like ammonia would be. So correct. Correct. Uh, so yeah, the product I'm using are, are stable environmentally over the course of the winter. So, and then that's one of the troubles we run into with no-till is when we go out to spread, you know, MAP or DAP on the surface or, you know, potassium has some solubility and it will move in over time. Yes. But, uh, you know, phosphorus uh, for baseline phosphorus applications has to happen with the planter or not at all. You know, I, you know, I think it's high risk to spread phosphorus on the surface of the soil. Watch it. You have to overspread it so much to increase your soluble or active phosphorus in order for it to move through the soil that now you create an environmental concern. Because if it's able to, if you overapply so much to increase the, the soluble or active phosphorus, keep it high enough to go into the soil, where else can it go? You know, you can wash away. to the Gulf. And yep. <laughs> there's a lot of shrimp farmers don't care for that too much. So, um, you know, that it's just not an economical way to do it. And then the other thing is, is once we do pH and soil tests, what do we do? We go out and we apply lime. Well, what's lime? Calcium carbonate. And at instant relax with the phosphorus, and now we've just made rock phosphate in our field on the surface. Uh, so we took that high-energy product that was mined in Florida or, or somewhere and, and from rock phosphate, you know, elevated it up yep. to <laughs> a, a plant-available phosphorus form, and then we apply lime, and we just got rid of it again. So yep. uh, there's lots of um, you got to think of nutrients in a system, which you've, which you've done. You've said... Um, Hey, uh, ammonia in October when the soil is above 50 degrees is is risky. And this year, I mean, it we we went to snow and then we came back up. You know, so yeah. there was a lot of ammonia put out in the end of October that, you know, I, I like I like knowing we have a, a 30,000 gallon tank there on the farm that has our nitrogen in it. And like mm-hmm. this year, you know, talk about this year where you you planted in June, right? What right. would what would the what would your ammonia been like? Um, <laughs> having it out there all that time ahead, and you probably had neighbors that had that. Well, there was a lot of, and th- and that dictated their their path through the year uh, because they had seventy, eighty, ninety dollars worth of nitrogen out in the field already. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they put it on in the fall, it had been there eight months, been through a lot of water because the reason we couldn't plant it was so wet. Um, you know, it it and it, I think as you went through the year, you saw that they probably did lose uh, some of that or a lot of that in certain places of the field and ended up being suffering yield loss as a result of it. So um, it it comes down to feed the corn plant what the corn plant would like when it would like rather than when it may be convenient or Mm -hmm. traditionally done uh, for us. So um, it's, it's like the title of my, uh, my seminar will be around, uh, you know, the best personal relationships you have come when you provide something to that person that they want or you treat people the way they want to be treated. And that golden rule applies to crops in general as well. If we treat crops the way they'd really rather be treated, maybe they'll respond as well. 
Very good point. Excellent. Yeah, I love that. And the interesting part is what you've done by that, by focusing on the plant first, or, you know, having having plant forward thinking, is it's also aligning economically uh, for lowest cost per unit produced. It's also aligning working capital wise, which we can't, you know, profit per acre and working capital utilization are two different things you know yes and then also environmental concerns because you're placing nutrients like even let's say what you strip tilled last fall if if you could have you know and you didn't get to plant it this spring because um matt's from bureau county which is uh, you're about i think 30 miles east of my farm and mm-hmm. you you won you won the award this year for not only do they have flat uh, perfect ground in most most areas um they also got another, I think, 10 inches or 13 inches of rain uh, that right. you just didn't need. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, all of those nutrients that are somewhat immobile will still be there next year. And you could index yeah. right back on the strip versus, like you said, the traditional person's got 100 to $150 an acre out there. What do they do? It grows great green weeds. Yes. And and you could see that. I uh, actually noticed that as because I did apply all of my corn fertilizer for 2019 would have been in strips in the fall of 18. Mm -hmm. Um, And then as we went into 2019 and couldn't cross fields, couldn't cross fields, you did notice that in the strips, I grew really, really nice dark green weeds. Where the fertilizer was, amazingly enough, it grew better weeds than it did between the strips uh, where there wasn't as much fertilizer. Mm -hmm. So sure, um, weeds like it as much as the crop. Well, that's one of the reasons we went to cover crops so much is because I'd rather choose my weeds. I, you know, yes. na- nature's going to send send weeds, right? And yes. uh, if you have a cover crop, it's growing. The, you know, the soil systems in, in balance and those kind of things. And I know that's a cover crop I can terminate, right? But if you <coughs> if you have eight hundred acres of Palmer amaranth or you know yeah. uh, um, you know water hemp or those kind of things, that that can be a challenge. So I like how you've de-risked your system, right? You de-risked it, you've uh, economics of scale and, and those kind of things over time. Uh, just a couple stories. I remember one time you, you shared with me when you were transitioning from full tillage to strip tillage, you were driving the sprayer and yes. uh, talked about how we think tillage is doing this great job of even shattering. And I think this is when you were comparing the, um, the broad scale points uh, to conventional points on the ripper and how your sprayer actually wandered as you drove through the field uh that you might share that a little bit about what that's part of that transition from conventional tillage to strip tillage that you did yeah so with the the traditional chisel plow points and that's uh, when i noticed this uh you generally go on a five degree angle to your old rows so that you can you can even out the field a little bit um but you also down deep a foot deep you're creating a washboard because you have mounds between those those ripper shanks. And so on the surface, once you get done running the soil finisher or whatever it may be across it, it looks very smooth. But when you get something that's heavy, uh, weighing down through the soft fluff and riding on that washboard, all of a sudden, I'd always thought of the sprayer and, and self-propelled sprayers in general wander back and forth at higher speeds, 10, 12 miles an hour or faster. And I always thought, oh gosh, it must be the solution tank sloshing back and forth. And then it dawned on me that that actually is every time that a wheel crosses that washboard uh, was what was causing it to wander at speed. 
So all of a sudden I got to an area where we had tested some wide shanks that shattered completely across the ground and the sprayer was dead straight. And it was interesting that even though I thought I was creating a very even seedbed with my tillage in the past, uh, in reality I was creating a, a pretty seedbed on top, but not a very even seedbed below where the roots count. So uh, it, it, it was an eye-opening experience to look beyond the surface. And then once you saw that, I mean, didn't that kind of bring into mind to you, why am I tilling this across this whole thing when the plants are using, you know, basically yes. directly below? And, you know, how, how did that kind of aha moment, just, just being in the know, uh, you know, just being there and looking and listening and feeling, don't you, right. don't you think that's the best thing we can be doing to improving our farms? Oh, yeah. And, and you start to look at, uh, you know, for, take corn, for example, you know, in a Midwestern focus, uh, corn is king. And, and you think about the root balls that I would till up doing that tillage, and they'd be roughly 12 inches around, you know, radius of six inches. And, and then I think about, OK, then there's all this room between root balls that we're never using. You know, there, you know, granted, there's roots in the middle of the row. I'm not going to argue that. But doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that there's more roots where the root ball is <laughs> yeah. otherwise it wouldn't be called a root ball mm -hmm. so i was like why can't i just put stuff there you know treat this like a 12 inch flower pot mm -hmm. you know and and fill the flower pot with what i want and if there's no fertilizer or no nothing out here in the row middle yeah, so be it i'm i've got everything i need for the crop right there well there there is one bad thing though when you go to strip till i hear is when, when yep. you're strip tilling you, in your tractor, you tend to turn to the side and, and look behind you all the time, make sure everything's working accurately, correct? And, mm -hmm. and things are flowing smooth and really paying attention with auto steer. You don't have to look forward and stuff. And then all of a sudden something happens. What, what, what happened to you out there in the field this, uh, this spring or was it last fall now? How long has it been um, since you had a little, think, hit a little hole out there? Oh, yes, yes. Uh, every once in a while, yeah. Last, uh, last year, I was spending most of my time looking back where the business is and uh, wasn't looking ahead and hit a, hit a, uh, a ditch that we'd cut with a ditcher at, at full speed. And uh, as a result, I, I now uh, have a little bit of a back issue I have to get taken care of. So <laughs> well, I, we... uh, I, hit it, I hit it hard enough that uh, even the satellite lost its convergence, and I had to sit there and wait for wait for the satellite to regain its position. So you so. jolted the antenna that much that it that it didn't know what was happening yes. to it. Huh. Wow! And, which was fine with me because I needed a few minutes to gain my composure and and, and quit making uh, some sailors blush every once in a while. So wow. That was a hit. So anyway, yes, so we're, we're, we're glad you're here today, and, and tomorrow uh, you're going in for back surgery. And yes, uh, then, then you're going to be you're gonna be 100% at Aggie Merch. So we're, we're looking forward to that. So we, we yes. wish you the best on that. But that is, that is one of the problems when you're, when you're farming and really paying attention to stuff that's going on with the business end of the tractor, like you said. We still right. got to pay attention right. to the front end of that tractor. <laughs> It's, it's no different than uh, driving a car. They say don't be a distracted driver. Pay attention to where you're going. It, it applies to yeah. every time there's a steering wheel in front of you. I have no so. idea how I'd get any email done if I didn't do it while I was driving, you know. So, exactly. Or else yeah. you spend so much time pulled over to the side of the road, right? Exactly. Why waste all that time? I'm making Kim a little nervous here. She's uh, 
That's okay. You only live once and crash once. So there you go. But um, so one of the things um, Matt and I just kind of stay in touch. And like I said, he's not very far from our farm. And, you know, one of the things I've dealt with, we've had 20, 25 years of no-till that we've done and typically haven't put on uh, maintenance uh, P and K. We put on starter, our power-to-grow starter on seed, and then we put on uh, typically a higher phosphorus-containing product adjacent to the seed, you know, either with the nitrogen band in the past or now we're running the furrow jets from precision planting. Um, so we do a 41010, or, uh, or this year we did a 721.7 to get the phosphorus, you know, supplemental phosphorus in ground, but still not very high rates of, of material. And that was really our only chance to do it. So one of the things I wanted to do is is just check out strip till, and I knew Matt had the ability to place uh, dry fertilizer for more of the uh, crop removal type rates that we're doing, and I suckered you into coming over. So right. we we actually had what one dry week. Um, yeah. We thought it was perfect. It worked up with your your uh, calendar, and you came over and did about sixty acres for us or so. Uh, mm-hmm. Talk to us about. Uh, what we came up with and, and what we did and what you, what you saw uh, going going back and forth um, over at our place. So so over there where, where you'd had the uh, long-term no-till, I mean, the soil structure was beautiful. And, and I remember you saying that it was a, a shame and, and that people were going to, uh, uh, you know, start to wonder if you'd lo- went off your rocker because now you had a version of tillage out there in the field that had been no-till for so long. So, um, but we wanted to kind of see, okay, going into this, you know, legitimately really great seedbed was, is there an advantage to putting, you know, various rates of fertilizer in there and, and with the strip till with banding, um, because you're not broadcasting across the whole acre, you can get away with, uh, potentially a smaller or a per- proportion of that, uh, of, of that fertilizer that's recommended. So we looked at some uh, reduced rates, 80% of crop removal, 40% of crop removal, and then, of course, zero uh, with just the, the strips being made out there compared to the no-till that, that you've done. So um, it was uh, actually one of the best seed beds uh, that I think I've ever made, but it probably was pretty good before I got there anyway. Well, I, I think one of the challenges we were that we were looking at is we had a historical disc layer there, even from 25 years ago at, at three mm-hmm. to four inches and it was a consolidated layer and we, you know, some sort of a vertical shank. Um, you have a, a John Deere 2510. Is that the right model? That's number? Correct. So some correct. sort of a vertical shank to, to, to bust through that uh, layer in order to, you know, prosper roots deeper. Uh, and then the other thing was too is your machine gave us the ability to apply higher rates of uh, P and K at depth. So I think you're applying it. Is it four inches? How you have it, your system set up? So or? the the shank point is sitting at about seven to eight inches. The mm-hmm. band of fertilizer lies about two inches above that. So we're about okay. five to six, five, five to, to six. seven inches is where that's at. So, so right underneath that root ball that will develop. Yeah, so we're planting it about two and a quarter inches deep, you know, so there's a four-inch uh, gap, and, you know, we intended on planting uh, two weeks later. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, we planted two months later, but uh, that's okay. Um, so, I mean, it was a it was a robust trial. You helped us out. We, we designed it together, and, you know, with RTK and those kind of things, we did seven reps uh, out mm-hmm. there of, 
you would go back and forth with, um, I think, you know, laid out the seven that was just strip till, seven that were 40% of uh, removal rate, and seven that were 80% of removal rate with your 12-row rig. And then we came over with the 24-row planter and could plant, you know, indexed right with you. And it, it yep. worked out great. Um, we And we did seven reps because of Murphy's Law, right? Yes. You'll always lose a few. So. <laughs> and we did great on our corn on bean. All seven were there. And uh, corn on corn, we had a couple mishaps on uh, on the no-till planting, but we still have five solid reps and uh, was, you know, real pleased. And I, I certainly thank you for, you know, taking the time and effort and the tire wear to come over and, and, and do that. And I'm, I'm glad it worked out. So, yeah, that's a couple things I wanted to learn is one is, is the strip till action with that consolidation layer I have. What is that going to help? And then secondly, by having additional uh, dry P and K out there for kind of baseline nutrition, you know, mm -hmm. season long nutrition that I just can't do with the planter or with Y drop, you know, what could that mean yield wise? So. And I think one of your questions was, is you, you typically are at 80% of your anticipated yield removal rate is, is what you place. And, you know, Correct. one of your questions was, hey, what, you know, could I be doing a little less than that on the, on the broadcast P&K? So we, I think that's kind of what put the 40% in there is just, hey, let's do what Matt does. Let's do half of what Matt does. So right. with the exception right. of the sulfur, um, you, you do dry AMS. We didn't do that because we have the sulfur coming in through, um, with the UN32 and thiosol, um, mm -hmm. and KTS, uh, going out with the planter in that. So, um, overall, I mean, we, we just, uh, got, got it together and it was, it was interesting. Um, you know, harvesting it, uh, I found it, you know, we, we talked on the phone, uh, one of the things that, that came through is uh, the strip till with no fertilizer seemed to be lodged uh, the most. And we visited a little bit on you, and you said you've had some experience with that in, in the past yourself or with others. Yeah, so so what you can find with strip till in general, so you're creating, you know, a, a six inch or eight inch wide band of, of mellow soil that's, you know, eight inches deep. So you've got this flower pot of loose soil surrounded by not hard soil but but firmer soil yeah well the path of root least resistance is where roots go so they tend to go down and and stay somewhat narrow uh when you're with strip till so they don't fan out they don't cascade out quite as much as you typically would otherwise so what you can end up with is a a instead of a wide foundation at 30 degrees out on all the all the roots you can end up with a little more slender foundation and and subsequently it can get tippy from time to time, so there's a there's a trade-off, I guess, uh, between feeding those roots and not having the plant have to go searching or, or search randomly for uh, fertilizer. Uh, trade-off is you don't get quite as many roots. And I think that's uh, important when when people are considering strip till in precision irrigation situations. So when they have buried drip tape or maybe surface drip tape, you know, keep in mind that. Like you said, there's this this zone, this this pot size zone, that um, you're going to have prolific roots. We want to make sure that we index that correctly to yes. drip tape, for example. So that's why a lot of times in California, we've done uh, when we have 60 inch tape, we'll do 20 40 row configuration with strip till okay. instead okay. of 
30, 30, 30, and hope the water moves 15 inches, we'll do 20, 40, or we'll do 12, 28, sometimes on 80s. So that way we're pairing those rows tighter with the strip till to get the water movement to move. And then also realizing, on the other hand, the root expressions, like you said, right. not outside of that zone because, you know, corn's lazy. Uh, it wants to do, you know, least energy, right? Corn, corn isn't a smart little being. It doesn't have a brain. It, it randomly grows roots and then grows better when it happens upon some. So right. if you've got everything it needs except one component, say the water out west of mm -hmm. the drip tape, mm -hmm. uh, you may not, get the, may not get the root growth out to where the water is. So the, the next observation at harvest I had is that we're, uh, we had the no-till. It was standing perfectly. Uh, yields yep. weren't as high. But where we had the 40 and or 80% uh, nutrient with the strip till, we noticed that the lodging was about half as much of strip till with nothing. So it was kind of in between the no-till and the strip till with nothing. So mm -hmm. that, again, shows where strip till and the nutrition are a system. It's not, yes. it's not one thing and another. You have to look at everything and how they interact. So have and you seen reality, similar things? The, the oh. tillage aspect of mm -hmm. strip till, um, which is the less desirable portion in, in my mind, um, is what's creating the issue of the loose soil, that, you know, the, the poor footing uh, for the corn plant. Whereas uh, in where we had the 40 or the 80, likely what happened is because it had more fertilizer available, it had more prolific roots. and Right made the best out of the, the, the loose footing that it was, it was being put into. Correct. So it was, it's an interesting trial, and I sure thank you for, for coming over. Anything about how we did it that you think we should uh, uh, look at doing differently in the future? Well, of course, you need to plan it a little bit earlier next time. So. Oh, well, uh, <laughs> I would, I would really uh, like to do that. No, it was, it was interesting uh, to look at it that, even even as we got planting in June, when when yields are typically you know 75, 80, 85 percent of normal yield levels, we still saw the stair step of the treatments as we went through the year. So it'd be interesting to see on a on an average year. I won't say normal because I don't know if normal exists anymore. On an average year, when we plant in late April or early May locally. Um, Percentage-wise, that might be the same distance between untreated and treated, but because of the numbers being bigger, you know, instead of uh, 205, 210, maybe the, the high yields are 240, 250, 260. wonder if that spread would be a little larger and, and thereby the, the economics of it would, would stretch out even more. Right. Is it just a baseline uh, bushel difference or is it a percentage difference? And as yes. you would creep into higher environments, if it's a percentage difference, then the economics would widen on yes. those kind of things. That, that's a very good point. And I, I think it bears uh, repeating. Uh, mm -hmm. my, my only concern that I had out of all of it is uh, with the intense amount of rain that we did have this spring, even though that you, you did strip till for us there first week of April, by the time we went to plant on our highly erodible land, we had some significant issues in erosion uh, right. where we did did run the strip tiller. So now I don't know if maybe a pluribus type uh, unit or a environmental tillage systems, a disc style strip tiller for the Midwest might might make a little bigger berm, might be less. Or, you know, in the West, we typically run uh, shank styles. So Orthman is uh, Kuhn. Those kind yep. of things are kind of dominant more west of the 100th. 
but back back east, uh, more of the disc styles for just strip tillers are more dominant. What's what's your thought on strip till styles for the local environment, or or what are you looking at? I'm sure if you're like me, you're always thinking about, okay, in one, two, five years, what's the next shiny object we're going to uh, put on the farmstead? Right. What we'll design the next mouse trap and and how wonderful it's going to be? And put all um, kinds of attachments on it, that you know nobody will pay you for and are worth nothing when you take them off. And yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. go ahead. <laughs> uh, I've got plenty of learning opportunities with that kind of experience. Um, what I like about strip till isn't as i've said the tillage aspect of it It, it's nice it alleviates some you know compaction some sins from the past but the fertilizer placement is the biggest thing to me so i've even thought towards the single disc opener type of of placement where you could get four and a half five inches deep would still get that band of fertilizer into the flower pot uh, coming up if you've got good conditions if you've got good soil structure and seedbed without tillage, chances are the only thing we're going to do is mess it up uh, with erosion or whatever it may be. So the the band of fertilizer, I think, is the bigger return on investment than the tillage itself. So in cases of highly erodible or, or you know, maybe it's not HEL ground, but maybe it's, it's something short of that, if erosion is an issue, perhaps a single disc opener can get away with uh, placement without creating the problem as well. Well, and I imagine even on some of your sand knobs that you have, erosion can be an issue, yeah. you know. Yeah. Uh, so, I, uh, yeah. You got to be careful. Uh, otherwise, you'll end up with, you know, every 30 inches, you'll end up with uh, right. a little trench in the spring. And uh, you don't want so. that sand ground down on your good ground, Matt. You know, it'll leave it leave it over there, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, what well, you know, I think that's really interesting because we were thinking along the same lines, too. We we're We're looking at... Uh, you know, maybe a horse or uh, a John Deere that we can equip to where on 30 inches mm-hmm. we blow in dry fertilizer. And the reason we're looking at dry fertilizer on a commodity crop is cost is always less because you don't have the water to haul. So now, you know, on a higher value crop with precision irrigation in California, liquid is your way to go because you can put it on exactly when you need it, the amounts that you need it throughout the growing season and all those kind of things. But, you know, on commodity crops such as small grains in Montana that we work with or corn, soybean in Kansas and Illinois, you know, looking at baseline nutrition coming from from dry fertilizer is is a great strategy. Just haven't been able to place it in the zone before without the advent of you know, Montag and Salford and, and these kind of boxes with the strip tillers. Right. So, um, yeah, I think that's great. We're looking at, you know, putting it on with a, a horse or, or deer uh, along with cover crop and time, you know, again, like, like mm-hmm. you're talking. Um, I'll have to bring my rig over to plant cover crops on, on, on your farm and bring you over to the dark side of, of, yeah. uh, of cover crops. So, <laughs> I did get an opportunity this year to, uh, as 2019 uh, transpired, I did get an opportunity to be a cover crop farmer. So <laughs> I, I have 1,300 acres of cover crops this yeah. year. So. <laughs> and you, you would have had 1,300 acres whether you wanted to or not, right? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So I, I now get to be an unintentional cover crop farmer. So. There you go. But I think that's um, uh, something we'll look at for next year is, is a rig where we can do that. And I think it'd still be interesting to um, look at. So you, you're really thinking your future is a single disc opener to place the nutrition uh, because, you know, your sins of the past, as you said, have pretty much been healed. 
Yes. Uh, until I create more, I'm good. And we'll see if, uh, you know, as time goes on, if, if I don't have the, the tillage fixes to fix, then there's no advantage to it. But if you look at all, across all the acres, I have some sand, as you've mentioned. I've also got some river bottoms, some peats and mucks, which honestly, it's not a bad thing to open them up and, and you know, open the sponge that they are up and let some air get in there. So um, an ideal world, if I had two widgets, uh, one that was single disc and one that was shank would be awesome. So. There you go. Now you're back against your working capital requirements again. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure the accountant would be very happy with me. Uh, you, pay, as, you pay them. Known you know, as it's my a, mother. Oh, so. yeah. Oh, that's it. Yeah, never mind. She works for free, so. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, she'll um, tell me I'll work for free, too. So. Yeah, exactly. But, no, that that's an interesting uh, combination there. And uh, um, so, I mean, it really explains the, the path that you've been on, right? You know, yep. you went from full-scale tillage, churn it up as much as you can and then knock it back down with the finisher. And then you created a layer that you needed the strip tiller to take out the layer that the finisher made. Right. Yes. And now that you've kind of done that over time, because you're moving your strips around the field, you know, you, you offset, uh, I think 10 or 15 inches every year from the 15 inches every, every so, time I strip. So you're splitting yeah. a row and you're getting enough over time. You've gotten enough cross shatter on every acre essentially yes. to get rid of that horizontal layer. Now you're saying that because that's done, Hey, we can really look at, taking the next step right okay right so, so you, you're I, really going to be heavy tillage on your heavy ground and minimum no tillage on your decent ground on the lighter ground yep yeah yeah every there you know maybe there is some areas where everything is identical across the field uh unfortunately uh neither one of my grandfathers stopped in that place um so <laughs> where, where they stopped i I, the wagon wheel fell off. I have sand hills. I have river bottoms, and I have a little bit of central Illinois stuff. Um, there's no one prescription that farms every acre. Uh -huh. So I have everything from full tillage to no-till, and every permutation I can think of between to for each farm, farm from each farm the way it has to be to make the corn plant as happy as possible. That is exactly right. I think too often as we as we look at scale, as farms get larger and larger, we're trying to make the processes simpler and simpler, mm -hmm. right? So that we can have yes. more and more people just, you know, cr just go and, and do it. You know, you run the mock till everywhere, you run the ripper everywhere, and you just run the planter everywhere. Correct. And uh, I think that, you know, you got erosion issues, and are you farming to the best of that soil's ability? and best of the cost ability. And uh, one of the things I think there's hope in the future is with ag technologies is, you know, having sensors on equipment that can make those decisions on the go instead of having to have this recipe card for 20,000 acres. Correct. What do, you, what do you see coming in that in the future down the road to help make those uh, decisions more informed Versus, you know, your background, you're an agronomist, you've done research, you've, you are in the know, you know, I'm, I've had the opportunity to see a lot of systems and a lot of acres. I mean, you and I have, have got that ability if we're driving the machine, watching the business end and hopefully not hitting ditches, you know, and all those kind of things. Um, we've got that base of knowledge. How do you translate that into, you know, someone with 20,000 acres who has 10 operators out there in the field? 
Right. So, so it, it is for, for you and I that have witnessed so many successes and failures, to be honest, uh, it's a bit of an art and we kind of know where, where to paint the brush and, and stuff like that. Um, how do you automate that, uh, for those that have, you know, more than one, uh, piece of equipment going across the field? Um, in reality, a lot of those things are going to come through sensors on, on each piece of equipment that, and it's not so much maybe just related to a planner. You know, there's a lot of sensors that can go on a planner that can make decisions. Every time you cross the field, perhaps it's when you're, you know, if you're spraying your burned down herbicide to kill a cover or whatever it may be, um, you're taking readings of that acre so that you have a, a you can create a, a more points in time on different aspects of it. So moisture for one ex example, maybe the density of the cover crop, um, as you get into eroded hillsides, you chances are you have less density or less vigorousness of the cover, which could say, okay, if it's only going to grow 40% of, of the rye that I intended, then why am I planting more corn or more soybeans on that? It may use that as a, you know, as the canary in the coal mine mm -hmm. for what's coming down the road. So today what is art is, you know, you and me making observations and, you know, gut feeling and smelling the soil, digging, looking at plants, that that over time is going to be replaced with numerous sensors, right? With every operation yes. we make with, you know, a daily um, overhead observations and stuff. So I, I think the decision-making computer capabilities there, it's just we aren't gathering the information we need to create that data set and if we based it all on 2019, we'd be in a real world of hurt. But, uh, yes. <laughs> you know, we need the data set, right, to, to make that process automated. So it, it's yeah. a huge need, don't you think? Just, a, a, you know, billions upon billions of productivity could be improved. Yeah, and the, the data set, the, the watch out with it is, is that if, if we focus solely on output-based data sets, so yield maps and such like that, they are a scorecard of the system that we deployed that year to grow that crop. They aren't necessarily representative of what that soil or what that environment could have produced. Mm -hmm. Chances are we ran out of management horsepower before we ran out of genetic horsepower or soil. Mm -hmm. So um, we need to figure out how to evolve into uh, uh, analyzing the data or analyzing a data set and generating a data set based on the potential of the soil, mm -hmm. not on our scorecards, our report cards that we don't want to take home and have mom and dad sign because we'd be embarrassed uh, and get in trouble. So. Well, we're getting a report card now, like you said, in the yield map, but we're just assuming what generated that. You know, yes. we need to take those assumptions out of that out of that equation. So. Yes, make it objective instead of subjective. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, well, where do you where do you see the future going for uh, for your operation and, and your family? And what are some of your goals uh, for twenty twenty and beyond? Well, twenty twenty, my goal number one is to actually plant every acre. So well, that's that, a, um, that's a solid goal. You know, yes. I'm going to set the bar low and hopefully not <laughs> drag my feet and trip over it. So, um, so but as I go forward. Uh, actually, this coming year in 2020, I'm, I'm not probably going to do much of any strip till because I have to reset a lot of the, the, the areas that I planted the cover crops to. So that 1,300 acres. Last summer, before I planted the cover crops, I went out and I 
atone for all my sins. I leveled out the fields, made them nice and smooth. I'm, they're ready to plant. But struggling to get through the other 45% of the acres um, that got planted, uh, that got planted in really bad conditions and thereby have planter tracks and sprayer tracks and combine tracks and the like, I'm probably going to have to do a lot of tillage on those acres for next next spring. So um, take a year off of strip till, still banding with the planter, still banding with Y-drop, but unfortunately, if you look at economics, I've got to go out there and uh, smooth out the soil and, mm -hmm. and uh, get rid of the, the sins I did in 2019 mm -hmm. and uh, set the stage for 2021's crop. So I'm always at least a year ahead in my mind. Mm -hmm. um, 2020 is 95% baked for me. Mm -hmm. There's still some changes that can be made, but I'm actually already looking at 21. So. And that's an incredibly, incredibly point, important point right there. Um, you know, I, I always say next year's, har next year's uh, crop begins with this year's harvest. And, yes. and, and residue, especially when you're in a no-till situation or strip-till, uh, residue management out of the back of the harvester. You know, leaving big wads of tomatoes in the middle of the field or, you know, leaving big, not spreading the residue uh, off of uh, soybeans evenly and those kind of things just set you up for failure. Or, in, in like you said, trying to get the weight of the crop harvested out of the field without tearing up the field. You know, that's just right. everything we do there has a huge effect on what you're doing, not only for 2020, but like you said, 2021. So, yeah, the more you can think about those things, the better. So, yeah. So as I go forward, I'll, I'll, I'm getting to where I'm thinking about more nutrients, more than just P, more, just, more than K and S, and how much I need and what proportion of them I need deep in the soil for later in the growing season. Uh, so my, my strip-till band of fertilizer is really meant for uh, waist high and above corn, mm -hmm. so V8 and above corn. Uh, whereas I'm pr the planter and, and, and side dress are providing for earlier stages. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm looking at what proportion of other nutrients I need to place deep versus what I need to place up, up towards the top. So it's not only about where I'm putting all the nutrients, but I'm trying to stage it for different growth stages. Well, very good. I think that's, uh, you know, just thinking about how all those things interrelate is the reason why you're successful and um, why, why you're able to grow the yields that you are and thinking like how to, how to treat the, how to be in relationship with the corn plant. Uh, I, I think that's uh, the, the golden rule for corn plants. I love it. There you go. So uh, anything else that uh, we should have visited about today or, or add, add to the mix while, while we're together? No, we, we, we talked a lot about, I use corn as my example. A lot of this applies to, to every crop out there, whether it be corn, soybeans, or, or vegetable high-value crops out west. Um, the biggest thing is look at, my, my number one thing is to look at what, where yield components are on that crop and feed the yield components. Yeah. Uh, corn, it's establishing stand, it's establishing kernel rows around, and then later on, kernel rows long and, and, and filling out the kernel. Mm -hmm. Soybeans, it's initial potting. Mm -hmm. Keep going during grain fill. You know. mm -hmm. um, don't give up on the crop. It will give up on you. 
Very good point. Mm-hmm. Very good point. Well, I uh, I sure thank you for for coming over and, and doing the trial this year, and we'll we'll have yes. some information on that for people at Ag Emerge in January. Um, I appreciate that, and you know, if you so desire to have us sometime, um, you know, bring our our rig over to to do that single disc opener type placement or or cover crops or those kind of things, we need to connect on that. Uh, be yes. happy to help out. It's only fair in return, right? And, there you uh, go. <laughs> uh, but I'm really looking forward to you to, uh, speaking to our entire group that's going to be there. Um, have, have you done a 17-minute before? You probably have. You can you can really deliver a concise point well. I'm, I'm guessing that that's not much pressure for you. Yeah, it's just you know choosing which information you want to get across in that 17 minutes. So 17 minutes isn't the problem. It's getting my getting my ideas across in the best most efficient way yeah it's kind of like farming you want to do it as well as you can correct and i think it i like it because it's a challenge right to to really narrow things down to the our our purpose our why and then of course the next day you can you can um you know go through all the details and yeah you ramble all you want exactly (laughs) no just joking but no i really appreciate you uh being willing to come out there in monterey i I wish you the best tomorrow uh, with your your back surgery, and uh, you Thank told you. me that uh, that'll be your first trip um, yep. is coming out to see us. So, I I you'll be running and standing tall, and you know, just I'll be doing I'll great. be standing tall. Running might be a bit of a stretch. Oh, okay. uh, but then, but uh, I have hopes and dreams and ambitions. So there you go. I'm not a runner per se, but I'd like to be able to if I so choose. There you go. There you go. Well, thank you so much, Matt. I really appreciate it. Um, uh, wish you the best on the surgery and a, and a Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and we will see you in, in Monterey there in January. All right. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity. Thanks, Matt. We hope you have a great day. What a great conversation with Matt today. We're so excited to have the opportunity to hear Matt on our speaker stage in Monterey, California, this January, the 7th through the 9th. You know, there's still time to join us to hear some of the great speakers, challenge your thinking, bring new ideas, bold ideas, things that are changing that old ag paradigm. To learn more or to register for Ag Emerge, you can go to www.agemerge.com. We sure hope you'll join us in beautiful Monterey and be a part of this engaging event.